0: We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. This reading is taken from Mark 15, 33-39. At noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthanu. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled in a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a star and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to
1: take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of
0: the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, it's lovely to be here with you, and let me add my welcome to Ben's, and thank you so much to Ben and Stu and Richard for leading us in worship up to this point. I wonder whether you've ever been properly dumbfounded. Conventional human wonder usually at some point issues in some kind of burst of exclamation. But sometimes what we experience is so great, so wonderful, so awe-inspiring, so mind-stretchingly extraordinary, we want to say so much that somehow we can't say a thing. And so it is, I find, with the cross. And with every every year that I know the Lord, it comes to feel more so. The cross of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of our faith. It is the symbol, quite rightly, of what we believe. The cross of Jesus Christ, said Paul, is our only boast. It is the most precious thing we have to speak of and to point to. As the songwriter puts it, the cross has said it all. Trouble is, we've only got 20 minutes, so which bit of all are we going to say today? And that's a question that's not made a great deal easier by our passage in Mark's gospel. You'll see I've deliberately cut it down to only six verses, but even then, our author Mark, who is not known for wasting words at the best of times, he'd be very good on Twitter, he goes into absolute overdrive, even for him. Every verse, sometimes even every half a verse, he's bringing in, he's boiling down massive themes of his gospel and actually of the whole Bible so that this moment of crucifixion seems to unite and draw together every single one of them. And the tricky thing is that even as he does this, the result of arguably the high point of Mark's gospel is not an explanation a confession, an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Mark chapter 15 verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said surely this man was the son of God. Now when you've only read the previous five verses like we have uh, this morning, frankly those words beg a whole load more questions than they answer. We, We may reasonably ask, how did seeing three hours of darkness, hearing Jesus' cry of dereliction, watching some confused bystanders, and then Jesus' final asphyxiation. How did those things get this centurion all the way to that conclusion? And the answer is, we don't know. And even if possibly Mark did, because he met the centurion on his early travels around the Christian church, he doesn't think that it's important to tell us Here, as everywhere in Mark's gospel, Mark has left out deliberately reams of information. The point that he's been working up to is actually one that's been working all the way throughout the gospel. And now, as Jesus completes his mission and dies, now finally, someone, a centurion, someone so unlikely it could have been me or you, says with conviction, surely this man was the son of God. And when we finish this morning, I want to ask you whether you are ready to make that same conclusion. We'll get to there in a moment. But I say all of that simply to underline that one of the best things you can do this Easter, much better than listening to me this morning to really grasp what's going on in these moments of Mark's gospel, is to explore again the whole message of the cross through the whole of Mark's gospel. Read the whole thing from beginning to end for the first or thousandth time. Or listen to it. There's a fantastic recording by David Suchet, audio recording. Or even watch Max McLean's one-man dramatic presentation of it. Reads Mark word for word all the way through. You can search it on YouTube. It's linked below in the description for this video. Because all of that, that whole context is needed to really plumb the depths of this moment. For today, though, allow me just to explore four things. Each little fragments of that great mosaic I've just been talking about. That I hope might lead us further for the first time or for the thousandth to acknowledge a new or deeper faith. Surely this man was the Son of God. And here they are. The cross shows, first of all, divine action, divine abandonment, divine access, and finally, divine acknowledgement. First, then, divine action. One of the things that the centurion certainly did see was divine action. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Jesus had been crucified. We are here, humanly speaking, at the end of the line. Whatever the plans of this budding rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, to all appearances, The initiative has been taken away from him completely. And yet here, in this final moment, comes an event far outside the control of even the mightiest figure on earth. Three hours of darkness. And that right in the middle of the day. Not at dawn or dusk, but from noon until three in the afternoon. Far too long to be an eclipse. And this darkness, the word darkness, suggests much more than just cloud cover or or, or sandstorm. The least we can say of it is that it is a miraculous happening, showing that God in this moment is still active. So the point is, at least, that it's not that God's servant started out well, but in the end, God couldn't really do anything to help him when it went wrong. No, remember, Jesus has long predicted this moment. He's gone towards it. It's been part of his mission right from the beginning. His God-given mission at that. God is active. But there's more. The darkness is the sign of a particular type of activity. It is the sign of God's wrath. It recalls the darkness that so often accompanied God's displeasure and his judgment in the Old Testament. Now, people find this idea of God's wrath very troubling. And it would be if the wrath of God, by that we were to imagine that God is given the same kind of moodiness or temper-induced swinging anger that we can be. But that's not what we mean by God's wrath. When we speak of God's wrath, we mean that part of his perfection that hates evil and that condemns it. And now on the cross, God the Father will direct that condemnation onto God the Son. Not to be clear that these verses spell all of that out, but later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says the following things. He says that he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for all of us. He says that for everyone who believes, Christ became a curse so that we would be redeemed, so we be saved from that curse. We've already seen recently in our series in Mark how Jesus went to crucifixion instead of Barabbas, an innocent man in place of a guilty one. But the broader picture of the New Testament is that he didn't just go in the place of one person, he came to die for every person. But I'm jumping ahead. For now, let us observe God here is active, divine action. Second, divine abandonment. Next we see divine abandonment. Verse 34. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a lo- loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the meaning of these verses is not at all obvious. Those in earshot of Jesus don't even hear him Right. Mark chapter 15, verse 35, goes on to say, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Perhaps my God, my God, Eloi, and Eli, which was Elijah's name, sounded so familiar, they got confused. But even once we realize that it's not Elijah being involved here, we still want to ask how? What on earth is going on? How do we make sense of this? How can it possibly be that Jesus felt forsaken by God? Well, I guess it could be that God had actually given up on him. You know, and I suppose the casual bystanders might have concluded that with a shade of cynicism. Oh, well, he was a godly man, great faith, but too much faith in the end. You know, God couldn't help him here. But I don't think that can be the explanation. Remember, Jesus had followed God's will to this place. He'd known it was coming all along, and he could have avoided it. And in the three days uh, that will follow, God will miraculously pull Jesus out of death, as Jesus had predicted. I don't think God has forsaken Jesus in that sense. And anyway, what about this why? Jesus asks, why have you forsaken me? What a strange thing to ask when he is in the midst of his own intended plan. He sounds confused, not confident. Well, here we're at a bit of a disadvantage as modern Westerners. If we were first century Jews, when we heard Jesus speaking, we would have recognized in Jesus' words the opening lines of one of our favorite messianic songs, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is about a suffering hero. And this that Jesus says here is the first verse. The psalm goes on in some detail. And it's full of echoes of all the different parts of the crucifixion. It talks about someone who is despised by those around him. How his mouth is dried up. How his bones are on display. How people cast lots for his garment. And undoubtedly, all of this Jesus has called to mind, perhaps in the years even before this, as he's read that psalm and known that he is going towards it. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as Jesus suffered the condemnation of our sin, he was God forsaken. The condemnation that he bore was real. There was a real and dreadful separation in the relationship between the father and son. And and that matters. It matters because, as Romans puts it, we believe that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and we believe that there's now no condemnation not because there never was any condemnation but because Christ has borne the condemnation he's taken it in our place though we deserve condemnation for our sin there is none anymore we don't need to suffer it because Jesus has already suffered it it happened in this moment of divine abandonment And yet, and yet, that is not all that we should say. Because though the Psalm 22 starts in desperation, it ends in triumph. And Jesus surely was familiar with this. It ends saying that God hasn't hidden his face, that he has listened to his servant's cry, that he has done it. You see, Jesus is not an innocent third party here who's going to be discarded once he's done taking our sin. The one who is offended by sin, the Father, and the one who bears the punishment of sin, the Son, they are the same God. On the cross and at the other end of the cross, the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they worked in unity. It was God who loved us. It was God who condemned sin. It was God who suffered in himself the pain and condemnation of our sin. It was God who bore it right to its end and God who rose again. God who saved us by himself, from himself, for himself, from beginning to end. So even as we talk about divine abandonment, there is a great paradox in this divine abandonment. Somehow, even As the divine abandonment of the Son happens, and it had to be utterly real, it happened within the singular saving purpose of God. The unity of the Trinity, the connection between Son and Father, ultimately was never unbroken. John Stott tells of a painting of the crucifixion in an unnamed Italian church. And at first glance, it looks like any other. But if you look more closely, there's a difference. Because behind the cross, there is a vast and shadowy figure. Behind Jesus, there is one. And the nail that pierces the hand of Jesus goes right through to the hand of God. The spear that is thrust into the side of Jesus goes through into God's own side. And so... I put to you, so it was on the cross. Now, before we complete this point, let's just stop and reflect on what we have seen. Let's consider, first of all, how these moments show the gravity of sin. The depths to which Christ descended, they're a sober reflection of the desperate consequences of our wrongdoing. And we find that challenging to hear. I certainly find that challenging. We want to remonstrate and say, no, okay, well, yeah, but I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that bad. But the cross holds up a mirror to me and it says, you are far gone. I wonder how you see it. Do you see the gravity of sin? But alongside that, alongside that, It shows also the amazing love of God. In fact, the more you understand the gravity of sin, the deeper you understand the amazing love of God. All this cost. He has really done this for me and for you, for his whole world, and he has done it. He's done it out of love. You know, you watch a mother care day in, day out for her children at great personal cost. And you see love. Or you see a married couple support one another through great personal difficulty. You see love. Where the cost is so great, it makes no sense. The whole thing, there is no possible sufficient explanation for taking on such a burden for another except love. Christ died for you and for me out of his immense, unfathomable, love divine action divine abandonment and thirdly divine access let's follow on the story mark chapter 15 verse 37 with a loud cry jesus breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom So the camera swoops up and flies momentarily back over into the middle of the great city and into the heart of the Jewish center of worship. Now to grasp what's going on here, you need to get a bit of a handle on the arrangement of the temple. So the structure of the temple was built in concentric zones, each with tighter restrictions as to who could enter. And right at the center of all of that was a a place called the Holy Place, barred off from, from the rest by a massive 20 meter high curtain. Only the priests could go in there. And in the middle of that, separated by another curtain, was a place called the Holy of Holies, accessed only by the high priest once a year for sacrifice. And that was the most immediate location of God's presence. The whole construction of the building was geared around this. And it reflected one great big problem. We want to have God with us. The God who made us, we long to be with him. But how can we, how can we as sinful people stand in the presence of the holiness of God? Well, here's how we can. When Jesus died, that inner curtain was torn. Torn not from bottom to top, as if by men pulling at it, but rather from top to bottom, an act of amazing divine intervention. And this was the message, divine access. God has torn down the barrier. Because of Christ, our sin has been dealt with and now anyone trusting in Christ can walk right into the presence of God with freedom and with confidence. And he's done it. God has done it. It is not our strength or our wisdom or our religion that has achieved it. He has done it. Isn't that amazing, good news? And I don't know how you see yourself before God. Perhaps you still see a great curtain, a great barrier, many great curtains of condemnation and sin. Well, if you are trusting Christ, I want you to picture those curtains ripped open every single one, ripping from top to bottom by the amazing, unstoppable grace of God. And imagine yourself running through them into the arms of your loving Heavenly Father. There is divine access. Divine action, divine abandonment, divine access, and finally, divine acknowledgement. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Mark's gospel, if you read it from beginning to end, is all about the identity of Jesus. Right at the beginning, he begins the good news about Jesus Christ, the son of God. At Jesus' baptism, God says of him, this is my son. Halfway through the gospel, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am and at that stage uh, Peter half gets it right he says you're the Christ but he can't for the life of him get his head around how that would mean Jesus going to the cross move on until chapter 14 the high priest asks Jesus are you the son of God and now Jesus personally says yes he is and now finally in the great climax of the gospel someone not a disciple not even a Jew A centurion, someone so unlikely it could have been you or me, finally says, with conviction, surely this man was the son of God. So for all the theology that we've just been through, Mark isn't writing to get us through a theological exam. He longs to see women and men throughout the ages, right now as well, as it were, standing in front of Jesus, Standing in the sandals of the centurion, seeing him go all the way through death and come to an acknowledgement for themselves. Surely this man was the Son of God. And so it continues today. It's been so encouraging, even these last few months, to see people coming to that realization for themselves here at this church. And it's happening in all sorts of places. Far-flung, unlikely people all over the world. I've had the privilege over the last couple of years of seeing a Kurdish believer under great family pressure to stop getting baptized. I remember an Iranian believer hounded out of her home back in Iran, yet radiant with joy when she came into church in the UK for having discovered Jesus, the Son of God. What about you? Perhaps you've known this Christ for the better part of your lifetime. I pray that your faith today in him may be strengthened and may go on being strengthened day by day. And again, perhaps you've joined us this morning and you're still looking in. You know, a bit like the centurion must have woken up on that first Easter Friday. But you're beginning to see it. Perhaps you've been almost there for some time, perhaps not quite. I wonder whether today or this Easter, is the time for you to stand in front of that cross, to see how Jesus has died, and to make that divine acknowledgement. Surely, this man was the Son of God. Amen. As we close, I thought it'd be nice for us today, recognizing that amazing confession of faith, to join in the creed, So just before we have our final hymn, uh, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried.